Uh, it's my sincere pleasure this evening to welcome you all to the first event organized by the International Humanitarian Law Project here at LSC. The International Humanitarian Law Project uh, is a project of the Law Department. Uh, my name is Chaloka Beani. I'm senior lecturer here at International Law, um, and I will be chairing this event. The event is titled General Reflections, and our speaker is none other than General Sir Mike Jackson, not to be mistaken for another infamous or famous Jackson, I must add. I can't sing. <laughs> but in talking about general reflections tonight, um, General Sir Mike Jackson brings a distinguished and authoritative account of a soldier's work at the highest level of the military profession. He began his army career learning Russian in the intelligence corps at the height of the Cold War. He also spent two years at the Ministry of Defense and served in Berlin and Northern Ireland. He was commander of the UN peacekeeping force in Bosnia between 1995 and 1996 and went on to command NATO's Rapid Reaction Corps from 1997 to 2000. He took charge of the successful military operation to end the ethnic cleansing of Albanians in the former Yugoslav Republic, for which he was awarded the Distinguished Service Order. He went on to serve as Commander-in-Chief, Land Command from 2000 to 2003. In February 2003, he was appointed Chief of the General Staff a post relinquished in 2006. Reportedly referred to as Darth Vader and Prince of Darkness by his troops, he has recently published his autobiography, Soldier, which presents his extensive military experience in an honest and direct manner. And this is the account that he brings to us at night. As always in these events, um, our speaker will speak for 30 minutes. They will then follow a question and answer session for about 30 minutes. And it is important to say who you are um, and the institution to which you belong in order for others to know. The event should end at about 7.40 because there's a book signing ceremony outside. And for those who want the treasured signature uh, of the general upon purchasing the book, then you'd have the pleasure uh, of having that. Uh, and with those words, I am pleased to call upon General Sir Mike Jackson to speak to us this evening. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for the, uh, that introduction. Uh, and of course, um, it's not entirely altruism, me being here. There are some books out there, uh, and um, special price, no doubt, at the LSE. And I'll be delighted to sign them. Uh, as I said, every book sold is another fish finger in my grandchildren's mouths. So um, uh, nothing to do with me. Um, ladies and gentlemen, what I want to do is actually take a broad view of uh, the last 20-odd years or so, briefly, uh, and look at where we are in a difficult and uncertain world and where this uh, may take us. Uh, some of what I say... Uh, may, uh, I hope, uh, give rise to some good questioning because I always find in some ways that the question period on these occasions uh, is more stimulating than listening to me banging on. But I will do my best to keep you awake for the next 30 minutes or so. It's just under two decades uh, since the first of two rather seismic strategic events took place. 
and that is the end of the Cold War, uh, as epitomised by the dramatic scenes of the Berlin Wall being demolished by those people uh, which it had been put up to keep inside uh, East Germany all those years before. And it was an extraordinary event. And there was great euphoria. Some of you looking around are a little young, perhaps, to be have it in your own memories as such. But the American academic historian Francis Fukuyama wrote a, a celebrated book, um, which he entitled At the End of History. Uh, that was, in a way, um, I think indicative of the euphoria. Uh, sadly, events very rapidly showed that it was by no means the end of history. And as a soldier would put it, um, such a title was a bit previous. Because what happened at the end of the Cold War really seemed that a lot of nascent potential conflicts had been prevented from breaking out by the superpower rivalry, the super block rivalry. My analogy here is the pressure cooker and the lid was screwed down uh, in that period. But when the Cold War came to its end, uh, that lid came off the pressure cooker and we saw some of these nascent conflicts uh, actually becoming real. Conflicts based on ancient rivalries, ancient hostilities, boundaries which were disputed, ethnic rivalry. And of course, it began in Europe's backyard in the Balkans. Uh, and again, we forget perhaps the miserable scenes that were nightly on the television uh, from that Balkan war during the mid-90s. And I'm afraid whether we like it or we don't, it was the first test in a way of Western resolve to deal with such appalling events uh, after the end of the Cold War. And despite, in 92, the European Union taking on the task of policing that war, if that's the right word, which it isn't, but it will do for now, under a United Nations uh, uh, aegis, it didn't, it didn't work. And whether we like it or we don't, the Bosnian War was brought to an end by getting American political will and military power involved. Now, so far, so good, one might say. Uh, as far as Bosnia was concerned, that was brought to an end by the Dayton Peace Agreement. Not much love by any of the parties, in fact, far from it. But it was something they were all able to settle for. And that peace was then implemented by NATO, rather than the EU or by the UN. By NATO, which was able to demonstrate to the so-called then warring factions, uh, political resolve, military capability. Um, we also saw Kosovo uh, a little later uh, in 99. Uh, it was said, I, th I can't remember by whom now, but it was said that really the Balkan problem starts and ends with Kosovo. And one notes that despite all the effort that was made in 99 to stabilize the situation, to save life, and to buy time, which was done politically, uh, we are still not out of that particular wood. And indeed, 
the, the end state for Kosovo uh, is still not there. And it's getting a little difficult um, because the West view is that Kosovo really has no other outcome but independence. A qualified independence, but nonetheless independence. This, of course, is anathema to Belgrade and, by extension, uh, to Moscow. And so we shall see, I think, some, some choppy waters in the next few weeks and months, uh, particularly if, as appears to be now, uh, pretty much taken uh, as it will happen, there is a declaration uh, unilaterally of independence by, by the Kosovo government uh, once the Serbian elections are out of the way. And the first round has happened in Serbia. The second is, I think, about 10 days away. So there is still some volatility there. Uh, there's something else that happened before I come to my second major seismic change in strategic circumstances. And that is the invasion of Kuwait by Saddam Hussein, which, if you recall, uh, took place in the autumn of 1990 and was the opening act, if you like, in a very complex, very complex play which has not yet, not yet ended by a long chalk. More of that later. But we had here an absolutely naked aggression by a relatively large power in regional terms on a small neighbour. But then, then came the second extraordinary event, so-called 9-11, with the appalling destruction and loss of life which took place in New York and Washington. A quite clear, as far as I'm concerned, declaration of war by al-Qaeda on the West, its values, its freedoms, and all that it stood for. And it's interesting, is it not? Bizarre almost. It's known by shorthand as 9-11, uh, and indeed, that is the way any American would put that particular date uh, of the 11th of September. In Britain, of course, 9-11 is the 9th of November. Bizarrely, that is the night the Berlin Wall came down in 1989. So 9-11, 11-9, whichever way you look at it, and for whichever side of the Atlantic, uh, just gives a, a rather odd coincidence in my mind. Now, where are we? Uh, some, where are we now? Seven years, uh, uh, sorry, six years after 9-11 after and getting on, as I say, for two decades uh, since the end of the Cold War. Well, we have an uncertain world. I think that's self-evident, uh, where the unexpected, it may be sensible to expect it. We have, in many ways, a globalization of the economy, but a polarization of culture. And these two things are, are not in harmony in the way that I'm sure we would all wish. And if it's an uncertain world now, I cannot stand here in front of you and with any sense of honesty or certainty say that I forecast a more certain world or a safer world. Uh, I'm not a Cassandra, on the contrary, I, I'm inclined to be an optimist and my glass is always half full rather than half empty. 
But, but we need to be realistic. Because we are engaged, not in some great superblock rivalry, where possession of territory uh, was perhaps more important even than the ideology. Uh, we seem to be in an era where there's the battle for ideas may yet prove to be more important than who sits on which bit of this planet. And it's about attitudes. It's about perceptions. It's about one's very identity. And that is where a lot of the schisms lie when you actually look around and you see uh, conflict, either incipient, potential, or actual. There are some other problems, too. Uh, I'm not a, a green in, in the in the rather single-issue uh, sense of that. But it is only sensible to acknowledge that this planet makes no more coal, no more gas, no more oil, indeed no more uranium. And therefore the sources of energy as we use them now are finite. I don't believe uh, that renewable energy is going to be able to cope with current demand, let alone forecast demand, as particularly uh, in the Far East, China and India, uh, continue to industrialize and to make such extraordinarily rapid uh, economic progress. And so access to energy, I suspect, will become an increasing problem. And it is bizarre, isn't it? South Africa, the most industrialized country on the continent of Europe, is suffering power cuts, to the extent that some unfortunates were stuck on the cable car to Table Mountain, I saw. Um, and so access to energy uh, and almost a conversion of, of energy or on the other side of the same coin in a way is um, perversely, um, and you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't have any difficulty in this country at the moment, um, but access to water uh, in some parts of the world will become, if it isn't already, uh, a matter of politics. Uh, rather than just a matter of physics. Some other thoughts, too, I think, about the nature of conflict as we see it today. Increasingly, it seems to me that state versus state conflict is rare. I wouldn't say it's not at all, but I would say it's rare. Increasingly, conflict seems to be intrastate or between factions, between ideologies. And since, for example, uh, the United States Army is the most extraordinary military machine uh, on this planet, uh, to take on the United States Army in a conventional way is not clever at all because you are going to lose. And so if you wish to apply violence in the pursuit of your political ends, uh, you are going to do it not in the symmetrical way for some force, you are going to do it asymmetrically, which is very simple in some ways to do for those who use it, and rather more difficult to defend against um, for those whose job it is to do that. And so... Uh, how to deal with unconventional operations, how to deal with asymmetric operations. They're not of themselves terrorism, although terrorists use those methods 
for obvious reasons. But even, I would say, guerrilla tactics uh, by, if you like, a defeated army uh, uh, conventionally could well be seen in this way. My other concern here is the question of nuclear proliferation. Uh, whether we like it or we don't, and I know we have the non-proliferation treaty, but I fear, realistically, it will be impossible to prevent nuclear proliferation on this planet. It is 62 years since the only two weapons used in anger were dropped on Hiroshima, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, I very much hope that uh, the next 62 years will not see uh, a recurrence, but the concern and the worry is there. Now, in all of this, where should Britain position itself? Well, I don't believe that some fortress Britain, some fortress United Kingdom, pull up the drawbridge, we're fortunate to be an island, pull up the drawbridge, pull the duvet over our heads and hope the bogeyman will go away, is, I'm afraid, going to work. We live in a global world. We do. Uh, increasingly, our economy is global. And I just don't think that sort of isolationist approach uh, is going to work. And hence, of course, to at least to some extent, there lies the explanation in Britain's military operations uh, over the last 10 to 15 years, in that they have been at a distance, at a very considerable distance in some cases. And the word here, of course, is intervention. How successful has intervention been as a strategy for this country? Well, I think it's fair to say that, that the uh, answer is a bit of a curate's egg at the moment. In Bosnia, uh, we got there. I just hope that Dayton does not get unraveled by any developments in Kosovo. Well, we are not there, as I pointed out a little earlier. Often forgotten, a, a small British heavy uh, in the sense of composition of the force, uh, but very important uh, operation was carried out in Macedonia uh, to forestall a possible possible breakout of ethnic violence in that country in 2000-2001. Uh, in Africa, we have the stunning success of Sierra Leone. Uh, in May 2000, Sierra Leone was in a very dangerous position indeed. Uh, those of you who have seen the, the film Blood Diamond will know just how awful Sierra Leone was at that time. And that despite the presence in Sierra Leone of 17,500 United Nations troops. In the end, Kofi Annan, the then Secretary General, had to appeal for help beyond that UN force. And almost predictably, Britain, with its, with its history uh, of West Africa, uh, uh, said, we will do this. And a, a very short very rapidly mounted within 48 hours or so, intervention um, actually saved Sierra Leone. Uh, I think that's not putting it too, too highly. Uh, East Timor comes into this lexicon as well. Uh, our contribution was modest. It was an Australian-led operation, which again achieved 
some stability and bought some time, but sadly it doesn't seem that East Timor has found its political solution either. Running as a backdrop to all of this, and I'll come to the big two in a minute, don't worry. Running as a backdrop to all of this, um, Northern Ireland, we uh, almost forgotten about it, haven't we? But without going too far back, I think Cromwell will take me another hour or two and we'll leave, we'll leave that to one side. But picking it up, picking it up in 1969, when the army was first deployed, um, we saw, frankly, what was the outcome of it at its core, a political problem, which was that two groups of people living on the same small bit of territory had utterly different views about who they were where their loyalties lie and where their future wanted to be. And a political problem such as that can only at the end of the day have a political outcome, a political solution. So winning in Northern Ireland, and I'm going to go on a little bit longer, and you may be thinking why, because there are one or two principles here. Winning in Northern Ireland was not some form of military defeat of the IRA, or indeed, nor could the reverse have been true the IRA defeating the British security forces. No, winning in Northern Ireland at the end of the day was the proposition that unlawful violence shall not change constitutional arrangements against the wishes of a democratic majority. Now, it's not great glory in that, but my goodness, there's huge fundamental importance in that, that violence will not prevail and will not take over proper politics. And in the end, that solution did come, eventually. I'm touching wood, but uh, at midnight on the 31st of July last year, an extraordinary thing happened. Um, I normally offer a Mars bar at this point for, for the first hand to go up, but we won't test. At that point, at that time, midnight on the 31st of July 2007, the British Army went non-operational in Northern Ireland after 38 years, less two weeks. And we obviously are still. Uh, a remarkable achievement. Just bearing my thoughts about political problems and political solutions in mind, let me now turn to uh, the two major interventions which, of course, occupy much of our press and popular concern uh, today. I'll start with Afghanistan because that's how it took place chronologically. Uh, after 9-11, after it became clear that, that the, the heartland of Al-Qaeda, and arguably where the training, at least some of it, had taken place, was indeed uh, southern Afghanistan. And that extraordinary operation took place to topple the Taliban, mainly, mainly using indigenous Afghan forces with Western air power. And uh, again, almost a sense of euphoria. A Bonn conference held in December, I think it was, uh, attended by the international community to, sh to work out the way forward for Afghanistan. Elections held, uh, things seem to be improving. And I'm afraid, in my view, the eye somewhat went off the strategic ball because Iraq then became uh, increasingly 
uh, a preoccupation, certainly in Washington, and uh, depending on your point of view, uh, almost to the same extent uh, in London. And Afghanistan, uh, it became clear as, the, as two or three years went by, was beginning to slip, and therefore this decision uh, by, in this case now, NATO to take on that task and to ramp up its military efforts. Uh, uh, and that began to happen uh, in 2005-2006. The Taliban were defeated in the field, but of course what they were able to do was to cross the border into Waziristan, into uh, northwest Pakistan, uh, and regroup and retrain, and we're seeing that. And just on pass on with Pakistan, um, recent events are, again, of a huge worry. Um, the assassination of uh, Benazir Bhutto, the position, therefore, even more delicate that uh, President Musharraf finds himself in. Will there be forthcoming elections? How does he ride the tiger of uh, a fairly fundamentalist approach by those who live in north, northwest Pakistan? We will have to see. And then Iraq. Uh, well, it's just reminding ourselves, some of you may not like this, but bad luck, that in early 2003, the opinion polls in this country were saying two-thirds approved of the proposal to take military action against Saddam Hussein. Um, now, it's two-thirds, in round terms, who are again um, interesting. Uh, I could, and I'm just looking at the clock. Um, somebody can ask me the question, if you wish. It's all in the book, I hasten to add. Um, but I can take you through my approach to the issue of legality. But it's about a three or four minute answer. Uh, and um, I wouldn't be standing here in front of you unless I had satisfied myself on that point. You can tax me on it. I will, I will move on for now. We wasted, I fear, uh, much opportunity after the, the very fast, very swift, very decisive uh, conventional action against Saddam Hussein's uh, army and police force. Because a vacuum occurred. Not for the first time. We had seen such a vacuum in Kosovo uh, when all the Serb infrastructure and administration left. Uh, but we saw it on a grand scale in Iraq. And decisions such as uh, abolishing the Iraqi army and the Iraqi police force and the decision to debartify down to a very low level uh, I'm afraid, in my view, were very flawed. And it cost us time, and therefore it cost us blood, and it has cost us treasure. All of that said, there have been some developments over the last few months in Iraq, which I find very interesting. Firstly, there is the security surge, so-called. Secondly, there are some different politics emerging. And certainly, uh, the rate of incidents uh, and attacks is way down on what it was. And refugees are returning from neighboring countries. Now, cause and effect is always quite a difficult process to, to pin down. 
Um, but very interestingly, on the political side, there seems to be an increasing acknowledgement by the Sunni that they cannot bomb themselves back into a position of predominance, which is the minority they had under Saddam Hussein. Therefore, the answer has to be politics. The accommodation between the ethnic groupings in Iraq at the end of the day is a matter for them. If, I, as I sincerely hope they have, uh, uh, over time and at great cost, concluded that they must live together. Uh, I, for one, uh, do not yet call Iraq one way or the other. I think we have some way to go uh, before outcomes become clear. So, there we are. Um, I have done my little tour uh, d'horizon. Um, there are one or two areas where I haven't gone into, um, such as I have not yet mentioned, but I better had, otherwise I'll be accused of, of pulling the duvet, duvet over my own head, and that is Iran, and where developments will lie. Um, I do not know, I don't get access to it, and haven't had for whatever it is, 18 months now, I do not know to what degree Iran is pursuing a militarily uh, nuclear program or not. Clearly, the country is pursuing a nuclear program, but the degree to which it can be used for weapons, I do not know. What is the intent? Well, we, we know what the words say. Ahmadinejad has said them. Uh, he's also said words about the existence of Israel. And, of course, those two things put together make very uncomfortable hearing for any Israeli. Will Israel allow, it, whatever the United States does, will Israel allow Iran to become a military nuclear power? I don't know what the answer to that question is. My experience and knowledge of Israel tells me the answer is no, they will not. So we have a danger. It would, of course, not only Iran, but also the whole of the Middle East, would be brought on spectacularly in terms of stability if, if that elusive political settlement in Palestine, as between the Palestinians and the Israelis, could be achieved. I wish Mr. Blair huge luck, um, but it's a hell of a mountain to climb. Um, I think I've had my time. I have had a wonder over some of the areas where I think uh, we should be looking carefully. Uh, my final thought in all of this is that uh, it's not just, although I stand before you as a retired general, it's not just or far from it just a matter for the military. Uh, intervention is not just about the military. Far from it. It is about, very simple to say, it is about taking a country out of a wretched and dark past into a better future. A future where the country will be at peace with itself, at peace with its neighbours, stable, with a representative government, not necessarily a Western liberal democracy, but a representative government with which the people are 
content or accepted. A country where the economy is starting to move on and a country where refugees have come back because they feel they are able to. Very easy to say that. It's very difficult, very complex and challenging to achieve. And it requires many actors on that stage and not just soldiers. Not least, one of the attributes which is perhaps a very difficult concept for some who have never really understood or experienced it for themselves is the rule of law, uh, without which life is very difficult to achieve that end state of which I was talking. And all of that said, I will finish, though, if I may, by coming much closer to home and saying when the military are required, uh, you have in the United Kingdom, I think, some of the finest armed forces wherever. And uh, we depend on them a great deal. I would ask you, and I, I ask this question the whole time, as to whether we have got in proper balance what we ask of our soldiers and the way in which we treat them. And I'm not sure we have. Because at the end of the day, whether you're a minister, a general, a civil servant, whomever, without the soldier on the ground, you are nothing. Because it's he or she increasingly who will achieve the effect which you've set out to do. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it from me. Um, in terms of my monologue, um, we'll now enjoy a dialogue. Over to you. now have some probably 35 to 40 minutes for questions and I would like to take the first three questions please and just remember uh, to say who you are um, and the institution to which you belong and I would like to take people's questions on the basis of gender, location in the theater uh, so that there's some equity and fairness in the process but your hand was first up. Thank you. And my hearing is not what it used to be, ladies and gentlemen, so I'd be grateful if you'd use the microphones and speak up. Thank you. Thank you. Um, General, my, my name's John Ewell. My, my question is this. Should Parliament or Government have the final decision on whether or not British troops should be deployed in conflict? Thank you. Take the next one in the middle. Yes, please. General, sir, you mentioned the, uh, in the unilateral declaration of independence by Kosovo uh, in, the, in the works. Do you think that will become a precedent uh, for the mm. dismemberment of Iraq, uh, which will now, which may become uh, uh, um, fragmented into a Kurdistan and a Shiaistan and, and then Sunni Arabistan, and also uh, of Iran when the Iran invasion eventually takes place. There, there is, there, I have seen some studies um, uh, which are available on CIA website 
that Americans are thinking of uh, creating a new state combining the Iranian Balochistan and Pakistani Balochistan because they seem to have the uh, uranium deposits and other minerals that we need. Could you please tell us your name and the institution to which you belong before you sit? Uh, and I promise that it will not end up in some secret database somewhere. <laughs> my name is Kavi, and uh, my position is the same as the general, so I'm a car person. Thank you. Uh, hello, Ben Wright, uh, King's College, London. Uh, my question was about your theme of turning points over the last uh, 10, 15, well, 20 years, I suppose now. Um, I was wondering if you thought a turning point was avoided in Kosovo uh, when the Russian army occupied the uh, airport and uh, the... Uh, it's all in the book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, the first question, ah, I'm not sure it's really one for a, a retired soldier. Um, uh, that is, should Parliament have uh, the final decision, the final political authority to, to commit uh, British Armed Forces to uh, a deployment? Um, my understanding is that the Prime Minister has already said that he would ensure that Parliament would have that would have that right. But of course we, we, we get into the vagaries here, do we not, of the glorious thing that is the British Constitution. Unwritten, always flexible. But here we, here we have, of course, the old royal prerogative uh, from the, the days before constitutional monarchy, um, where the monarch had that right uh, individually. And that right, amongst some others, uh, in terms of the royal prerogative, passed to the government not to Parliament. Um, but it seems to me in today's world that it would be a brave Prime Minister uh, who, particularly in the light of the run-up to the uh, Iraq action, he would be a brave Prime Minister who did not seek parliamentary approval. But it, it's, not, it's a political question, really, uh, not a military one. Ah, I've got the gentleman there. Um, Thank you for the question on UDI. Is everybody happy with the UDI, uh, Unilateral Declaration of Independence, harking back to Ian Smith and Southern Rhodesia, him saying. Um, but UDI Kosovo, yeah, it, it worries me. Um, I would go first to Republika Srpska in, in Bosnia. Um, the least happy with the date and outcome. Um, and still, there is still friction uh, between, really, Republika Srpska and the concept of a, of a still a unified Bosnia. Um, and if they're shown an example by Kosovo, one has to have, I fear, I, I, I would have some sympathy with, with Republika Srpska, saying, well, what's good for the Kosovans is good for us. What's the difference? The difference, of course, is a strategic judgment. But there wouldn't be any difference in law, it seems to me. Uh, your, sir, your move on to uh, declarations of UDI by constituent parts of uh, Iraq um, 
I find less convincing, if I may say so. Um, the Kurds have shown, I think, have shown great uh, political maturity in the way they've handled uh, the post-Saddam Hussein uh, era. And I, you, you heard what I said about some interesting politics emerging, it seems, rather better um, as between Shia and Sunni. Personally, I think Iraq would be, they would be mad to, to, uh, to divide themselves, although the Constitution passed by referendum almost allows it. There's a, some difficult, complicated language about groupings of provinces and what they can and can't do. I mean, Iraq, it is blessed with natural resources, with oil and gas, with the two mighty rivers of, of the Middle East, with a well-educated population who have a, a strong work ethic. The potential of Iraq is enormous. Um, so I, for one, very much hope it stays together. Um, turning points. We'll never know, will we? With every historical if, what if they'd have gone that way? Well, we'll never know. Um, now is probably not the moment for me to indulge in a personal little um, story about Pristina Airport and um, uh, um, uh, the sudden and somewhat unexpected arrival of a particular contingent joining K4. <laughs> I'm sorry? <clears throat> it's, t it's 10 to 15 minutes to get it right. But I do tell the story in detail in the book. <laughs> I better sh shut up doing my own market... Market, um, marketeering, hadn't they? Yeah. May I please invite three more questions? Shall we start from the lady in front, um, the lady in the brown sweater, and the gentleman at the top? In that order. It's, it's fine. Hello. Oh, thank you, General. Um, it seems that the, the notion of security has, has taken precedence now in global politics. And yet, at the same time, it seems that this, this, this concept is becoming much more ambiguous. Um, you mentioned that the, the, the state of warfare is changing. And so I wanted to ask you, in your experience, in your perspective, where do we draw the boundaries around uh, state-initiated and state-sponsored violence today? And for uh, the again, future. please, that last point. Where can we draw the boundaries, in your opinion, or where should we draw the boundaries around state-sponsored and state-initiated violence in this current uh, setting we are in? Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Hello, my name's Jenny. Um, I was just wondering, almost for a gossipy side, what you think of President Putin and possibly his yeah. current manoeuvres yeah. and perhaps well, drawing on Litvinenko. Thank you. I wanted to bring Russia up. <laughs> yes. I've got two. Good evening. Um, I'm, I'm, in... I'm under orders to do these in threes. But, um, yes, I have a question. Shall here. I take these two or is it up? Ah, I'm so sorry. Quite all right. Uh, my name is Tom Rodwell from Pictay Asset Management. Uh, I have two related questions on Afghanistan for you, uh, General Sir Mike Jackson. The first is, in the very welcome change from the arms plot uh, to, for want of a better expression, the super regimental system, the British Army lost four infantry battalions, regular battalions. Do you think the loss of those battalions uh, directly impacted 
uh, the resources we sent to Afghanistan, initially a reinforced battle group, now a reinforced brigade, arguably where we need a division. And then the second related question is in Afghanistan, uh, we seem to have moved away from our tried and tested inkblot strategy, uh, which worked in Malaysia and Kenya, to a more reactive kinetic strategy of engaging the Taliban uh, and then withdrawing back to bases. Do you think that's related to this lack of resourcing? And a summation might be, is this the malign influence of the Treasury uh, with respect to your call for better treatment for the British Army? Um, are you in the firm by any chance? Once upon a time, sir. <laughs> right, let me do my best. Um, I might deal with Russia first, I think, because I'm trying to see how, the, how it might flow. Um, yeah, I mean, Russia, that extraordinary, how did Churchill put it, the enigma wrapped in a mystery, etc., etc. Um, and one should not, in my view, underestimate the enormous psychological change which Russia went through at the end of the Cold War. Um, they are a proud people. Why on earth should they not be? They are the people of Tchaikovsky, of Chekhov, Tolstoy. Uh, they lost. Hard thing to say. But they lost that Cold War, which, thank God, never went hot. And... That's, that's difficult for any nation. And I don't think the West handled Russia as generously as it might have done as Russia came out of the Cold War. But, you know, spilt milk and all of that. Um, it goes back to your question, the gentleman there on the balcony, Pristina Airport, and, and how the Russians behaved over Kosovo. Remember, that NATO took action, military action against Slobodan Milosevic without a United Nations Security Council resolution in the certain knowledge that Russia would have vetoed had one been put forward. And in that, in that way, um, one could argue, one could argue that Kosovo was more of an illegal war than certainly Iraq, even if I accept some arguments which I don't, could be said to be. But there was no real outcry about that at all. Um, indeed, uh, you get into this rather nice and fine dividing line between legitimacy and legality, which may not necessarily, of course, be two sides of the same coin. I think there was a, a general sense that Kosovo was legitimate. You could argue its legality. Other than, of course, the, the emerging there must be some lawyers in the audience. Any lawyers? Yeah, 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 well, one or two. Um, so I should probably get into trouble, but I'll do my best. The, the, the then emerging doctrine in international law that the pre previously held, the previously held tenet, enshrined, of course, in the UN Charter, that a nation's sovereignty is absolute. This emerging doctrine which said, well, no. That does not mean to say that a nation can do anything it wishes within its own borders if it is committing humanitarian crime, ethnic cleansing, whatever. Now, some, not all lawyers accept that, but that is the emerging doctrine. 
Um, I, I wandered slightly from Russia. But you can explain to some extent that Russian fit of peak, call it what you like, um, in the sense what they were saying, you know, you are bombing a Slav country, a fellow Slav country. Uh, don't under underestimate, too, the connection of the Orthodox Church, the Serbian Ch Orthodox Church and the Russian. Uh, you, and you're doing this without a Security Council resolution. Uh, uh, you're, you're ignoring us, basically. And Russia is not to be ignored. We are a major country. We were your allies in the Second War against Hitler. Uh, we deserve better than, than that. We are major players on this world stage. Those were the sort of messages, I think, uh, that, that were being sent. And I think they're the sort of messages which are still being sent uh, by President Putin. I mean, you probably saw today's paper. We have, I think, the only aircraft carrier which is actually afloat, Russian, uh, in the Bay of Biscay with some escorts. And um, those splendid machines, photographed in today's times, I don't know if anyone else had it, of the, of the, um, the bear, as NATO uh, nomenclature, the bear bomber, great thing with four sets of contra-rotating twin propellers. It's about 50 years old, that thing. It's amazing. It's still flying. Um, militarily, it doesn't really mean much. Politically, no doubt, they're trying to send a signal. We are here. And, um, you know, I have some sympathy uh, with, with Russia as a major player on the world stage. Um, let me come to the question about uh, where do the boundaries lie? Difficult one, isn't it? Um, and I think you mean boundaries to state behavior. Yes. Well, the only boundaries to state behavior uh, are, of course, those which are imposed by international law. Um, Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait was blatantly and outrageously illegal, but he did it. The Argentinian invasion of the Falkland Islands in 1982 was blatantly and outrageously illegal, but they did it. Um, so really, I fear, the following question is, what do you do when a state exceeds the boundaries of accepted behavior? What action is taken? And this is where I... Uh, this is where I really bring in my own view of, of Iraq because Saddam Hussein was in defiance of the United Nations and had been for 12 years. Nobody's yet asked me if I want to go on, but um, uh, um, how long do you let a man like that, frankly, go two fingers to the world and the United Nations, which for all its faults is, is the only institution we've got? which can, if you like, establish and, and uphold uh, those, those boundaries of behavior. Is that right? Okay, we'll take Good question. I've done my best. Now to, the, now to the technical ones from the balcony. There was? There, there's some technical questions about the Army's organization up yes, in the balcony. Um, okay. 
in, in, in 2003-04, it, it never got published as such, but, but we had to go through, I say we had to go through, not the country, the armed services had to go through virtually a mini-defence review, because yet again, uh, the money and the programme were out of kilter, and there wasn't going to be any more money. So the programme had to be looked at. Um, some said the army got off lightly. Um, Air Force lost 10, 12,000 personnel. Uh, Navy lost quite a few ships. It was a very difficult time. Um, and you rightly point out that, that the army uh, had to come down from 40 battalions to 36. We got it back to 37 by, by a nice little set of circumstances at the right time. Um, predicated, predicated on Northern Ireland normalizing, which it did. That freed up, depends how you do the arithmetic, but that freed up far more than the three battalions that went. Because we had, what, three resident and three uh, en roulement at that time. And, and of course the Treasury, who, who second guess everything you do, their starting point, right, well, you don't need those battalions anymore. Because they didn't do anything else but North Ireland and everything else worked, so you don't need them. So not only will we take the three resident battalions, but to maintain three Roulamont battalions on a two-year tour interval, the arithmetic says you need five. So to keep three Roulamont battalions in Northern Ireland, you actually need 15. So, so actually we'll have 18 battalions of you. And that's where the arithmetic started, in the low 20s. Yeah, you may well shake your head. It was gruesome. And we ran of arguments other than we need to keep a general reserve. We need resilience. You don't know. The unexpected doesn't cut ice with the Treasury. He's got to be specific. Um, so th there we are. Um, you then linked that to Afghanistan. We could not maintain a division in the field in, in Afghanistan or, or anywhere. We only have two. Um, you could do it as a, a one-off, as, as, as we did indeed uh, in uh, in Iraq in 2003, that was 40,000, that was a good division's worth in the field. But uh, uh, where we are now, a strong brigade is supportable, I would say, ad infinitum. That's, that's not going to strain, provided we don't get another commitment somewhere else, or we have to revisit Iraq from where we are now, two and a half or thereabouts, or coming down to that way. Um, we cannot do these things alone. And this is where I think, you know, we're going to get tested uh, over, over our willpower. When I say ah, the West. NATO, quite rightly in my view, uh, came to the view that more must be done in Afghanistan. There's too much at stake and it will be a long haul. And NATO's political decision making is done by... Um, a fine body of people known as the North Atlantic Council, which comprises ambassadors from all the member nations. And they must approve and adopt uh, whatever plan or policy, operational plan, um, is to be put into effect. And of course they won't do that unless they have positive instructions from their capital so to do. So far so good. Right, we now have a plan and we have a force structure. Now, O oh nations have all approved the plan please say what you're going to put forward to provide that force structure. And there's a mismatch 
between, oh yes, of course, jolly good plan, we'll do it, and then actually putting a hand in the pocket and seeing what comes out the other end. So uh, the whole alliance needs to do more. They also need to take off some of the ridiculous caveats they put on the use of the forces they do produce. And their name's no pack group, but uh, some of them aren't good. We do not want to eat in the time for the book signing. One more round, I think so we could do, I think, three, get three more. Questions? Why not? Um, can I check? This is a bit of a lottery. Um, at the back, please, and probably one from above, this side. Thank you. Um, Alexander Stewart, Lincoln's Inn. Is it your view that the IRA, a stand-down, to, to call it that, was caused or influenced to any extent by 9-11 and, and the American antipathy to, to terrorism? The drying up of the Boston yeah. dentist money. Thank you. Uh, my name is David Harrington. I'm a member of the public. You said that Saddam Hussein was holding two fingers to the international community. Uh, Again, please. I, you said Saddam Hussein was holding two fingers to the international community for 12 years. Do you think before the invasion he was a, 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 an actual threat other than to his own people? You talk about the <clears throat> Thank you. you talk about the fall of the Berlin Wall, and since then there's been a huge movement of populations around the world, diasporas being set up mm. which were never there before. In view of this, do you see in the twenty first century the demise of the nation state as a result? How long we got? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, three very interesting questions. Um, yes, um, I believe 9-11 uh, was a very severe blow to the IRA's and Sinn Féin's platform because whereas, for reasons we're, I think we're all perfectly well aware of, there was the sense of support coming out of the United States, that stopped almost overnight because... The use of illegal violence is the use of illegal violence is the use of illegal violence. And I, I for one, do, do make a connection there. Um, and I talk to quite a few people about it as well, both uh, Americans um, and um, nobody from the other side. You know, but, uh, I don't know if you agree, but um, that connection is there without, in my view, any doubt. Um, was Saddam Hussein a threat to anybody but his own people? Well, um, he'd proven to be an actual threat to Kuwait. Um, and the occupation of Kuwait was pretty unpleasant. Um, so where would he have gone next? We don't know. We never will. Uh, but I don't think that because he did nothing after he was shoved out of Kuwait in terms of aggression across his borders we can assume that would never have happened. What was he up to? I mean, the whole weapons of mass destruction saga. We know that. Whether or not the program had had it by the time we went in, in the sense that nothing was happening, we know that he had used uh, poison gas against the Iranians during the Iraq-Iran war. We know that he had used poison gas 
against his own people uh, up in the north, the Kurds. We know that he had every sense, it was there, that he wanted to develop further if he could. Now, again, we could go into the whole weapons of mass destruction saga, which is a, a, a very interesting one. Um, but I don't accept that Saddam Hussein could be deemed to be a threat only to his own people, ergo, leave, leave it alone. Um, I find the moral equivalence argument, well, if that's true of Saddam Hussein, what about, what about Zimbabwe, for example? And that is a very difficult argument, and I have a lot of problems uh, in my own head as to making a distinction. We can't be everywhere. Uh, and Saddam Hussein's defiance. You remember, you remember at the end there was, just before, there was, there was much high drama in this country over the, um, the so-called Second Security Council resolution. Well, of course, it wasn't the second. It would have been the 18th Security Council resolution since the invasion uh, by Saddam Hussein of Kuwait. The UN reaction to that was 678, which says, get out or you'll be thrown out. We know what happened. He was thrown out. At the end of that, 687, the last two digits reversed, 687 said, we endorse the ceasefire, which has been negotiated between the coalition and uh, the Iraqi regime. We endorse that ceasefire. Ceasefire, very important word. Provided Iraq meets the following obligations, and there are about 14 of them. But you didn't. How long do you go on when we strive to have a world where there are some rules and some boundaries, allowing somebody just to go, there we are. That's, that's where I come from on that. Um, and the last question, thank you, sir. Uh, well, yes. Um, the demise of the nation state. I don't know. <laughs> um, I think that's one rather more for academic study than it may be for a, a, an opinion from me. Um, I doubt it somehow, because the world is so organized in that way. Um, it's hardly an ideal organization, but it's the one we have, and it would be very hard to see how it would be replaced or with what. But, um, you know, as I said at the beginning, expect the unexpected, and, or don't be surprised by whatever. I don't know. Is the <laughs> there we are. Okay. <clears throat> Shall we just show our... General Sir Mike Jackson has given us a bird's eye view of the defining moments of his career as a soldier. But of value to us as a project is that there are also key defining moments in the development of international law in relation to international humanitarian law, the use of force, the doctrine of intervention, um, as well as the relationship between human rights and international humanitarian law, and of course international criminal law. But what's more humbling is that although we teach our students that international humanitarian law is binding upon soldiers individually, but to be in the same room with a soldier who is the very embodiment of the command structure through which international humanitarian law 
uh, is enforced, I think is something which is very unique and, and something that we welcome very much. And for that, we would like to thank the general for the precision, the logic, um, almost military precision, and the directness with which he delivered his lecture. I would like to thank the Law Society for sponsoring this event. Uh, without them, we would not be able to mount the events that we do. And there's also a book signing ceremony. And as I said at the beginning, if you wish to get uh, the treasured signature uh, of the author himself, then this is the moment and strike while the iron is hot. Thank you very much. The books will be delivered in the room in a minute. Um,